We'll be starting today on page 102, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so welcome everybody to lesson four. As we see, we're going to be starting today learning about Joseph and his brothers. About Joseph and his brothers. And as we are continuing to go through our stories, secrets of the Bible, iconic stories, mystical meanings, and their lessons for life. And that's exactly what we're going to do today in continuing with our next story in the book of Genesis of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph and his brothers is probably the longest. Yes. You have to unmute yourself. Mary, you need to unmute yourself. I'm just saying hi. Okay. I'm just saying hi to Liz. That's all. Oh, okay. Making sure everybody's here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Hello to subject for today. We'll do all our uh, cordials, I guess, when we're done, to make sure everybody knows who's here. So our subject of today's is Joseph and his brothers, and this is probably one of the longest running stories in the Torah. Just in the book of Genesis itself, it dedicates over 10 chapters to this story. And as we read the story, we're going to get to some mystifying questions and maybe in a way even some disturbing questions as we analyze the story as Joseph and his brothers. And as we did in the previous lessons, we watched a video recounting the story of the Torah because of its length. We're going to chop up the story in three parts and unsummarize in between each part of what we're going to discuss. So let's start with the first part of the story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph was 17 years old, shepherding with his brothers in the flocks. And Joseph brought bad word of them to their father. Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, as he was a child of old age to him, and he made him a striped coat. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and they hated him. And they were not able to speak peaceably with him. Joseph dreamed a dream and told his brothers, Here we were bundling sheaves in the middle of the field, and here my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and here your sheaves surrounded and they bowed to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Shall you then reign over us, or will you rule over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. He again dreamed another dream and related it to his brothers, and he said, Here I have dreamed another dream, and behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing to me. His brothers envied him, but his father guarded the matter. Things come to a head when, one day, Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers, who are out shepherding the flocks in the countryside. They saw him from afar, and when he had yet to come near to them, they schemed against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. 
Now let us go and kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, An evil beast has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Reuben, the eldest of the brothers, dissuades the others from committing outright murder, suggesting that, instead, they throw him into one of the pits out there in the wilderness. Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his coat, the striped coat that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. They sat down to eat bread, and they lifted their eyes, and they saw, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, but our hand shall not be upon him, as he is our brother, our flesh. His brothers listened, and they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph to Egypt. They took Joseph's coat, and they slaughtered a hairy goat, and they dipped the coat in the blood. They sent the striped coat to their father, and they said, We found this. Please recognize. Is it your son's coat or not? He recognized it and said, My son's coat. An evil beast has devoured him. Torn. Joseph is torn. And he mourned his son many days. Before we move to the next video of a summary of the story of Joseph, what we have over here is just to summarize part one of the story describing how Joseph was sold into slavery before his by his brothers, and because his brothers were jealous of him because of the dreams that he said and so on. Anybody have any uh, questions on this one before we continue? Anything troubling here? How can brothers be so mean? Okay. Anybody else? Yes. How come um, Binyamin wasn't his favorite if he was the youngest? Okay. Binyamin, we will soon find out if Binyamin was the favorite. All good questions. Anything else? If they were all so righteous, how could they do this? Okay. Why did they hate him so much just for the dreams? Okay. All good questions. But now let's move on to part two of the story. And I'm sure you'll have some more questions. Got a question, Arnie? Yeah. We're now on page 106. The next segment we will read is from Genesis, chapter 45, and it occurs 22 years after the selling of Joseph. In the interim, this is what happened. Joseph was taken to Egypt and sold to Potiphar, a high-ranking officer in Pharaoh's court. Joseph was immensely successful in everything that he did, and he was put in charge of all his master's affairs. Potiphar's wife lusted after the beautiful and charismatic young slave, and she tried to seduce him. When Joseph rejected her advances, Potiphar's wife had him thrown into prison. After many years in prison, Joseph gained his freedom when he successfully interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, which predicted seven years of plenty 
followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh appointed Joseph Viceroy of Egypt, and Joseph's successful planning saved the entire region from starvation. The famine also engulfed the land of Israel, and Joseph's brothers came to Egypt to purchase grain. Joseph recognized them, but they did not recognize him. Joseph accused his brothers of being spies. Taking one of the brothers as a hostage, he forced them to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, to Egypt. At first, Jacob refused to send Benjamin to Egypt, but the famine was in full force, and soon their food ran out. Finally, Judah persuaded Jacob by vowing to assume personal responsibility for Benjamin's safety. When the brothers came to Egypt for the second time, Joseph framed Benjamin by planting his silver goblet in Benjamin's sack. He arrested the brothers and declared that Benjamin will remain in Egypt as his slave. Judah approaches Joseph to plead for Benjamin's release, offering himself as a slave in Benjamin's place. This is what happens next. Joseph was no longer able to constrain himself, and he called, Remove every man from my presence. And no man stood with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He put his voice to weeping, and Egypt heard, and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers could not answer him as they were bewildered before him. And Joseph said to his brothers, And now do not be distressed, and it should not upset you that you sold me here. For as a source of livelihood, God has sent me before you. It is not you who sent me here, but God. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, So said your son Joseph, God has placed me master to all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. And that is how Jacob and his twelve sons, who would become the twelve tribes of Israel, ended up in Egypt. Okay, so what we have over here is a story told of our of the brothers, they send them down to Egypt and eventually they reconcile with him. And we see how Joseph identifies with them, tells them who he is and eventually tells them and has no animosity against them and says it was all planned by God. So we have over here two parts of the story. Part number one of the story where the, where the brothers plot to kill their brother, but instead of killing him, they send him down to Egypt. Part number two, is where the brothers finally meet Joseph. Joseph takes revenge, so to speak. But then, when they finally identifies with them, he says, don't worry, I'm nothing against you. It was all God intended. So why does he try to take revenge? So what we're bothered over here is what we boil down to it and what it comes to is that we're left with two major questions in this whole story. While there can be many questions in the details of the story, there's two major questions that we can have. Number one, like you all mentioned, if the brothers were so great, and even if they weren't so great, how much more so that they were so great, how can brothers even do such a thing? The brothers' actions, number one, in trying to kill the brother and then even selling them into slavery is 
uncalled for, to say the least. Number two is Yosef's behavior. On one hand, he treats them harshly when they come, accuses them as spies, takes their brother away. But on the second hand, what does he do? He invites them and he says, it's not my fault. It's not your fault. God intended that we should be here. So what does he have here? Is he a little bipolar here? What's going on? Why does, on one hand, he says he hates them and then he likes them. Or he says it wasn't their fault. Now, just to be clear, this is not the first case ever in the Torah where people or brothers were fighting, right? Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. So brothers fighting is not a new phenomenon. Brothers not getting along is not a new phenomenon. But what is a phenomenon is by who these people were, because these were not ordinary brothers. Let's just take a look into what the Shalah, a 16th century Kabbalist, Rabbi Yeshaya Levi Horowitz writes in his commentary on the Torah, the Shneiluch Abris, he says as follows, in text number three, you can find it on page 107. He says as follows. Before explaining how the story of the selling of Joseph and all that happened with him is the basis for the kingdom of David and Mashiach, we must address the great difficulties with the story. First of all, a most general difficulty, the greatness of the sons of Jacob, the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. It is well known, certainly, they were greater than the supernal angels, as they represent the mystical 12 configurations of the divine name Avaya. How then could the mind grasp the idea that these exalted individuals were joined together to commit the most severe sin of all sins in the world, namely the sin of murder? So the Shalom blatantly asks the question, these people were supposed to be larger than life. They were supposed to be holier than holy. And over here, they come together. And what do they want to do? God forbid, murder their brother. How is it possible? And as we mentioned, another strange behavior that we have over here that we have to figure out is what happens over here. Finally, they come down to Egypt. Joseph reveals himself to them. But first, before he reveals himself to them, he number one throws Shimon into, into prison. He then demands that they should bring Benjamin, who he knew that if Benjamin would have to be brought, it's going to be a struggle and a fight with Jacob because Jacob favored Benjamin now that Joseph was gone. So he knew this is going to create angst and anguish between them and the brothers and the father and so on. But then if you examine it a little closely, what does he say? No, he has nothing against them because he tells them clearly, as we read in text number two, do not be distressed. And it should not be upset you that you sold me here for a source of livelihood God sent me before you. So make up your mind, Joseph. Are you angry at us or you're not angry at us? There seems to be a lot of anger that Joseph has to get rid of until the moment that he identifies himself with them. From the moment that he identifies himself to the brothers, all of a sudden he makes a 180 degree. Oh, you're the best thing ever since sliced bread. It's great that you sent me here to Egypt because or else nobody would have any food. Make up your mind. Are you angry that he sent them or not? So once again, there's obviously more to the story than what meets the eye. So let's dig into it. So the sages and the commentators, of course, as you know, we're not the first one to ask these questions. And the sages and different commentators throughout the centuries have tried to give different answers. And before we go to the soul, the mystical reason of the Torah reading, we're going to look at the outside of the story, what other commentators give. The sages of the Talmud acknowledge this issue, 
to the extent that the sages say an interesting piece here. Text number four. A person should never discriminate between his children. Look what happened on the account of two Sela's weight of a fine spun wool that Jacob bestowed upon his son Joseph more than his other children, provoking their jealousy and causing our forefathers to end up in Egypt. The sages of the Talmud say very clearly, don't show favoritism to any of your children. Because look, this guy got a coat for a measly coat. We all ended up in Egypt. That's true, but they maybe could have been avoided. If they would have been maybe extra behaved. So he said, didn't God promise to Abraham that they were going to be in Egypt regardless? But the question was how they were going to be in Egypt, for how long they were going to be in Egypt. But regardless, or it didn't have to become because of this jealousy. The point that the Talmud is showing here, the Talmud does not condone the favoritism that Jacob showed to show Joseph. Not only that, let's take it even a step further. Joseph was no angel here. He didn't he contributed to the animosity that his brothers had towards him. Not only did his father show favoritism, but Joseph comes along with his dream saying that I'm going to be a ruler over you. He doesn't suffice with saying one dream after they already call him. Here comes the dreamer and thinks he's going to rule upon us. But he comes with a second dream. And his brother's reactions to the fact that he was, was probably quite a stream. But there must be a little more going on to the jealousy here. It wasn't just because one child got a coat and because he had fancy dreams. And therefore, one explanation comes along and says that the brothers actually acted in self-defense. What was the self-defense? And here's this. The following two readings that we're going to read, text number five and text number six on page 109, explain to us what the self-defense view of the brother, brothers were. Text number five. They saw Joseph as one who was plotting to destroy them, physically and spiritually, or both together. And the Torah states, one who is coming to kill you, make haste to kill him first, an act of self-defense. Why? Text number six. When they only saw, when they saw that all of his children, Jacob loved Joseph, they thought that there will happen to them what will happen the same to what happened to Ishmael and to the children of Keturah, vis-a-vis Isaac, and to Esau, vis-a-vis Jacob. They believed that for as long as Joseph was alive, they would have no portion in the God of Israel, and their descendants would be excluded from blessing being given to Abraham and Isaac to be a God to you and to your descendants after you. This belief was confirmed to them by the fact that they saw that until now, only one of the children of each of the patriarchs inherited this blessing. Let's better understand what the Sephardic over here is coming to tell us. Let's look at the events of our forefathers that happened previously until the Joseph and his brothers came about. Let's take, for example, Abraham. Abraham had two sons. Isaac and Ishmael, or later on the children of Keturah. Who was the one to be the prerogative of Abraham? Who was the one to be able to be the next Jewish people? It was Isaac. Ishmael went by, by the wind and nothing to do with the Jewish people. Let's take the next generation. From the two children that Isaac had, there, were two, there, there was Jacob and Esau. Yes. Oh, so let's find out. So Jacob and Esau, and Jacob is the one that gets it. But over here, what's the difference? Good question. But the difference is over here, Joseph treated all the other 11 equally, while 
Joseph was treated favorably. So therefore, the 11 of brothers said, one second. What's going to happen over here is the same way Esau was meted out, the same way Ishmael was meted out, for all you know, we're next. So what's the way to go about it? Get rid of Joseph. If we get rid of Joseph, not only Joseph is a threat to our existence. It was a matter of self-defense. For, so for the, for the brothers, it was a prospect of losing their spiritual inheritance, not only spiritual, but also physical, was even greater than death. And therefore, while Yosef directly may have not threatened their lives, but the very fact that their father was showing favoritism, not only that, if you recall, it says that when he said the dreams, what did their father say? And he kept it a secret. He anticipated for it to happen. That means their father was looking forward for Joseph to rule over them. Their father was well aware of what's going to happen. They felt that their father was well aware in this plot. And the only way they can disrupt the plot, so to speak, was by getting rid of Joseph. So over here, the Sephora wants to say that it was a matter of self-defense for Joseph to stand up against, for the brothers to stand up against Joseph. So it wasn't out of hatred, so to speak. It was merely of them just saving themselves. Yes, they may have known, but they didn't know how it's going. Maybe Joseph was going to have 12 tribes. There's another explanation given. Another explanation that the commentators give that the disagreement between brothers and his and Joseph was not necessarily about the current issue, but was actually about something in the future. And here's what it talks about. Text number seven, page 111. The crown of sovereignty was granted to Judah. However, there is not have to been preceded by the kingship of Joseph in Egypt. The kingship of Judah would have never materialized. As the people of Israel would have never become a nation, God forbid, for Joseph is the champion. Joseph's brothers failed to understand this. Rather, they thought that Joseph was seeking the sovereignty permanently and exclusively for himself and his descendants. And therefore, they judged him by the law of the Torah, concluding that he's deserving death, that who is contesting the sovereignty of the house of David, for one who contests the sovereignty of the house of David as is contested the divine presence, and therefore is liable to the death. What did the brothers of here feel? The, brother, the brothers took it a step further. And the brothers said, listen here, we know that the king of the Jewish people has to be from the house of David. House of David means from Judah. And over here, what is Joseph coming along saying? That he's the king. What is he doing? In Hebrew, the words are, Merida b'malchus. He's going against the king. He's going against Jewish sovereignty. According to Jewish law, one who goes against Jewish sovereignty is liable to the death penalty. Joseph was liable to the death penalty. They did not know that what ultimately was going to happen was that Joseph was going to be the one who was going to pave the way for Judah. That was a separate story. But right now they believe that Joseph was guilty of treason. And because Joseph was guilty of treason, therefore right now they felt that they had the right to kill him. So in conclusion, what we see over here is on the explanations given by the Sephora or by the Shalah, we can appreciate the very fact that maybe why the brothers have judged Joseph so harshly in their own minds. Yes, it may have been a mistake. To their beliefs, that was the problem. But that's why they judge Joseph that way. 
So these explanations that we discuss shed a little bit of light on their deeper motive, but they still don't tell us the full story. We still have lots of questions. And what we're going to try to do in the next section is dig a little deeper into the roots of this conflict. And we will see then discover that the divide between Joseph and his brothers runs a seam in all of Jewish history until today. And not only until today, we talk about it every single one of us. There is a divisiveness that exists between Joseph and his brothers. And to understand this basis of Joseph and his brothers, let's get a better understanding of why Jacob actually loved Joseph. What was it that Jacob loved Joseph? But to understand why Jacob loved Joseph so much, we got to go a step back about the marriages that Jacob had to Leah and Rachel. And let's go back to the biblical text from where, if you recall, in last week's Torah reading, we read about where, Abraham, where Isaac tells Jacob to go to the land of Chorah and go away and go marry one of Lavan's daughters and make sure to stay there until Esau comes down. So here's the last part of the lesson of the videos to give us the story, the rest of the story. had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. The eyes of Leah were tender, and Rachel was of beautiful form and beautiful appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Laban said, Better I give her to you than I give her to another man. Stay with me. Jacob worked for Rachel seven years, and they were in his eyes as a few days in his love for her. And Jacob said to Laban, Bring here my wife, as my days are fulfilled, and I will come to her. Laban gathered all the people of the place and made a feast. It was in the evening, and he took his daughter Leah and brought her into him, and he came to her. It was in the morning, and behold, she is Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Have I not served with you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not so done in our place to give the younger before the firstborn. Laban, however, agrees to allow Jacob to marry Rachel as well, in exchange for another seven years of labor. He came also to Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked with him yet another seven years. And that is how Jacob ended up marrying both Leah and Rachel. Leah proceeded to have four children, one right after the other, Reuben, Simon, Levi, and Judah, while Rachel remained childless. Determined to participate in the creation of the people of Israel, Rachel asked Jacob to marry her maidservant, Bilia, and have children with her. That union produced Dan and Naphtali. Not to be outdone, Leah had Jacob marry her maidservant, Zilpah, which produced two more children, Gad and Ashar. 
Then Leah had another three children of her own, two sons and a daughter, Issachar, Zebulon, and Dina. Finally, Rachel's prayers were answered, and she conceived a child. Joseph was born. Eight years later, Rachel had a second son, but she tragically died in childbirth. The boy was named Benjamin. So what we see over here, yes. What was the age difference between uh, Leah and Rachel? We don't know exactly, but very close in age. Okay. And Bila and Zippel were my very young as well. What we see over here is we can now better understand a little bit the preferential treatment that Jacob had for Joseph. Very simply put, because Joseph was his firstborn child of Rachel, who Rachel was the woman he intended to marry. Leah was the mistake. Leah was the one that he was trick tricked upon. So regardless of the fact that chronologically speaking, Yaakov had 10 older sons, his wife of preference has always been and will always be Rachel. His firstborn of preference has and will be Joseph. So when Joseph comes along and says, Dad, I have a dream that says I am the leader. What does his father say? I'm right. You are really the firstborn. And therefore, what does the Torah use the terminology? That he guarded the matter. He was hoping for the realization to see that though this child who may have not been chronologically firstborn is going to be the leader of the brothers. This was also explained why Yaakov was so fearful for his second son of Rachel that after Joseph was taken away and sold, and Judah comes to Jacob and he says, we need to bring Benjamin down to Egypt because the master of Egypt will not give us any food if we don't bring down our younger brother. All of a sudden, Jacob realizes, says, yes. Oops, I'm sorry. This makes sense all of a sudden. Why? Because Benjamin is the only other child. You asked, how come he didn't show preferential treatment to Benjamin? He actually did. Why? And that's why he didn't let Benjamin go down to Egypt. And he was upset of go. He didn't want to let Benjamin go down to Egypt. So what we see very clearly over here is, first of all, the preferential treatment that Jacob has for Joseph. He, number one, supports the dreams. And this is all because of his love for Rachel, which he's protective of Benjamin, which causes, of course, the brother's jealousy. So what caused the brother's jealousy, if you had to answer in one simple word, is the preference is the fact that he loved Rachel. Yes. Because at that point, they didn't know that Binyam, because Binyam was, Joseph was the first one. Maybe he was afraid to see what was going to happen next. So what over here is, we must say that this whole thing over here, is just one crazy story after the next. And if you think about this, we, the Jewish people, come from this crazy story. But guess what? The crazy story is only beginning. Why? Because everything that we look about in this whole entanglement 
of how the Jewish people came about to being came about from a dirty trick that Jacob's father-in-law played on him. He decided he's going to give him Leah. Therefore, he had to work another seven years to be able to get Rachel. Meanwhile, Leah is the one that had the six children. Rachel had another two children, and then they had two children, and that's how today the Jewish people came. But what's really going on? Well, he deserved that because he his own blood. Oh, so let's look at this. You're getting to it. And he should have known. Well, let's see. Actually, you're touching on a very interesting point. So so follow along. along. I don't know if it's his fault, but look, follow along. Okay. (laughs) Let's see if you're right. So to understand the story, we need to go back even a little bit further to the story of Jacob's life and to the story that we discussed last week, which was the stolen blessings that he took from his brother Esau and how he explained last week's stolen blessings. And we will see how all of these stories, in all of the cases where deception is perpetrated, they all have a relationship. And let's see how it works out. In both cases, the deception was perpetrated with the fact that one sibling believed that they were another sibling, right? Jacob comes along and says, I am Esau. What does Leah come along and say? I am Rachel. Listen to what it says in the ta- in the Medrash, text number nine. Very interesting. Text number nine, page 114. All that night, Jacob was calling her Rachel, and she responded in kind. Then in the morning, she was Leah. Said Jacob to her, deceiveress, the daughter of a deceiver. Was I not calling you Rachel and you were answering me? Now listen to what Leah responds to him. Said she to him, Every teacher has his pupils. When your father was calling you Esau, did you not answer him in the same way? How did she know that? How did she well, okay. Well, how did she know that? Because I guess the story got around. It was her cousin. The one of the reasons why she ran away, don't forget one of the reasons why Jacob ended up in Haran was because he was running away from his brother Esau. Right? Number two, Lavan seems to be aware of it as well. And Lovin seems to make the parallel as well. Because when we, uh, Jacob wakes up in the morning and the wrong woman is by him, he goes over to his father-in-law and he says, Lomarimi, sonny, why did you cheat me? And what does Lovin answer? It is not done in our place that we give the younger one before the older one. What's the cryptic message that Lovin was telling Jacob? Text number 10. Lovin was taunting Jacob by saying, it is not done in our place. Lovin was implying in your place, the younger child is made into the firstborn, as you acted when you appropriated Asaph's birthright. But in our place, the firstborn rights won't be taken from the elder sister and given to the younger. What we see over here is Jacob says to Esau, what did he do? He manipulated him in taking the firstborn rights. What did Lover respond? Younger before the firstborn is not happening here. The same thing as well, Jacob told to Esau, told Isaac when he said, he is this my son Esau, he said, I am. What did Leah, Jacob said to Leah, when I was calling you Rachel, what did you say? You weren't answering. Let's go even a step further. Years later, Yaakov is tricked by his own children. They send him a slaughtered goat that looks like their son's, his son's blood dipped with the coat that he gave to his son. Here, too, the sages see a connection between the deception that Yaakov did and the deception that his children gave him. Text number 11, page 116. Just wait for this point, and then we'll take your question. Give me one second. 
Jacob was correct in acting as he did. Nevertheless, because he presented a hairy goat to deceive his father, that he is on his side, he was punished with another hairy goat whose blood his children presented to him. Regarding it, it says, and the skins of the goat kids were dressed upon the hands and upon the smoothness of his neck. Because this, they dipped Joseph's coat in the blood and presented him a coat to deceive him. It all corresponds one to the other. Yes. Um, on page 113, it says Laban uh, substitutes Leah for Rachel. I right. thought that Leah and Rachel together uh, decided to um, give the other one the sign. So they that- did it? Okay, so that's Lavan decided he's going to give Leah instead of Rachel. Now, okay. once Lavan decided he's going to put Leah instead of Rachel, Rachel did not want Leah to get embarrassed, so she gave him the signs. Okay, thank you. So what we see over here is a very clear thread of deception that runs between all the events that we're talking about here. So we see a very clear chain. Jacob steals the blessings, and as Patty puts it, because of that, love and tricks Jacob into marrying Leah, which then leads us to the brothers selling Joseph. So what we see over here is a very clear connection intertwining that the brothers selling Joseph was really part of an initial deception that Jacob started when he took the blessings. Now, what's going on over here? So let's delve a little deeper into the story now. What's the connection between a stolen blessing, a deception that Yaakov, who he's marrying, and the brothers, so much later, now selling their brother? And the way we find the answers, we read before, if you look in text 8 on page lines 4 through 6, the Torah says the words, the eyes of Leah were tender and Rachel was beautiful from for beautiful form and beautiful appearance. The Talmud explains as follows. Text number 12 on page 117. Leah heard people talking. Rebecca has two sons and Lovin has two daughters. The elder will marry the elder and the younger will marry the younger. He is a wicked man, a highway robber. How does the younger son conduct himself? wholesome man dwelling in tents. So she wept and wept until her eyelashes fell out. What do we see over here? We're not just talking about some yentas, talking about who's going to marry who, and talking about theoreticals. According to a deeper level of the mystical teachings of Hasidism, it tells us that originally, in the original scheme of things, Esau was destined to marry Leah, Rachel was destined to marry Jacob. Esau was the soulmate of Leah, and Jacob was the soulmate of Jacob. Uh, Rachel was the soulmate of Jacob. But as we are going to see in the next reading in text number 13, it contains a lot of information, and we'll break it up into piece by piece. But eventually, that these two main groups of Jacob and of Rachel and Leah need to coexist with one another because they come from two different factions. What does that mean? So let's begin by reading text number 13, and then we'll break it into pieces. Text number 13 on page 118. The essential difference between the two groups within the tribes of Israel is that the primary focus of the children of Leah was the service of Teshuvah, and the focus of Rachel's children, Joseph and Benjamin, were the service of Sadiqim. This is how it's sourced in their mother's Leah, is connected with the service of the masters of return, and Rachel is connected with the service of perfectly righteous. To continue, this is the meaning of the verse, Rachel was beautiful 
form and beautiful appearance. Rachel indicates the service of a perfectly righteous of beautiful form and beautiful appearance without blemish. Regarding Jacob, it is said, Jacob loved Rachel. Because as far as Jacob himself is concerned, this primary task in life is a service of perfectly righteous. As it says, Jacob was a wholesome man, a dweller of tents. His achievements are in the inside, within the realm of holiness, rather than venturing out to elevate the outside to the holiness. This is the deeper meaning of what the sages relate, that people were saying Rebecca has two sons and Laban has two daughters. The elder will marry the elder and the younger will marry the younger. Leah's life mission, which is the service of the master of return, indicates that her task is to return back Esau to goodness. Not so Rachel, whose mission is the service of perfectly righteous. So let's take the first step. And the first step that we talk about over here is to know that Rachel and Leah represent two different types of service, two different types of levels of serving God, two different life paths. There's the life path of a tzaddik. A tzaddik means absolute spirituality, absolute holiness. And these are the general paths about how one can serve God. And as we're going to explore this a little more. A tzaddik deals with only spiritual things. A tzaddik is only occupied with spiritual things. A pursuit of perfection. A pursuit of absolute holiness. A dweller of tents, as you would call Jacob. A person whose absolute involvement is only having to do with spirituality. Therefore, what does he gravitate to? What does a person of Jacob's demeanor look at? Rachel. Rachel was a beautiful form and a beautiful appearance. She had no issues. She was an absolute tzaddik. She was a person of absolute righteous wholesomeness and perfection, a disciplined spiritual life. Then you come to the level of a Baal Teshuvah. A Baal Teshuvah, which you can mean as a penitent, a master of repentance. Leah was a person who engages in the world. Therefore, Leah was destined for Esau, because what does it say? Esau was a person of the field. He was out there in the world. He was out there in material world. But in the positive sense, a person of the world, not a wild hunter who looks to destroy and kill, but a person of the field who looks to cultivate, to transform, to work with, and to generate, take seeds, wheat, and make it into flour and fine bread. That's what Leah was, engaging the world, not leaving the world. And therefore, Leah was destined to marry Esau, so she should be able to transform the material into something spiritual. So now let's go back to Jacob. Who's Jacob's first love? Who is Jacob attracted to? Jacob is a person of a tzaddik. Jacob is a person who is attracted to absolute holiness. If we go back to what we discussed last week, if you recall, the argument between Isaac and Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca saw that Esau's mission was, Isaac believed that why he wanted to give the blessings to Esau, because Esau's job was to develop the spiritual world. And while Jacob's mission in this world was to develop the spiritual world. Jacob was from Tikkun, which means order, while Esau was, or structure, while Esau was from chaos, and therefore Tov. While Rebecca believed that if I'm going to allow Esau to get the blessing, he has already been corrupted by the material world. He is not deservant of the blessings because the blessings will only corrupt them even more because he has been self-indulged in the materialistic world. And therefore the blessings have to go to Jacob so he should be able to combine the two and make them beautiful and become a master of both worlds. 
It was for this reason that we explained that the deception was a necessary cause for Jacob to do it because Jacob was now going to use the message of deception to be able to achieve the quality of mastering both worlds. While what was Rachel's opportunity? Rachel was only a person or of the spiritual world. And what was Jacob's desire? The spiritual world. Yes, it was given him the mission to master both worlds, but what was his first love? His first love is Rachel. His first desire is Rachel. The only reason why his mother had to connive this masterful plan of putting on the goats because Jacob himself was not interested in the material world. So she gave him the blessing that his father gave him of the dew of the gland, that he should be able to embrace the material and to become a master of both worlds. But what was he himself? What was his first inkling? What did he desire? What was he most interested in? The spiritual world. What did Rachel represent? The spiritual world. So, so therefore, as much as Jacob's mission was to do both worlds, what was his desire? The spiritual world. And his desire never changed and was forever the lust of Rachel. Yes. So then uh, maybe Rebecca saw in the future that he should marry both sisters in order to accomplish. Maybe. maybe that's right. World. Okay. So what we see over here is that Jacob's first love for Rachel, which is the tzaddik's quest for spiritual perfection, he found only in Rachel. But what caused him then to master both worlds, as you mentioned, was by marrying Leah also. And how did that happen? Only through deception. Because in a general way, would Jacob have gone to Leah? Absolutely not. Even after the blessings, because his whole idea was he is a person, a tzaddik, he is a spiritual perfection, and he doesn't want to engage in the world. He's only interested in something that's beautiful form, beautiful structure, which is Rachel. It's the looks as a, as a metaphor, as an example, it's because of her tzaddik, of her righteousness. So we see very clearly here now that because what this leads us to is. Because now Jacob always favored and his first love and his desire was Rachel. What follows is who's Rachel's prerogative? Who's Rachel's children is Joseph. What does Joseph represent? A tzaddik, the spiritual desire. What does Leah's children represent? The ones out in the field. So now we are ready to go to our second question, which is we asked at the beginning of the lesson of Yosef's curious behavior towards his brothers. And if you recall, we wondered why Yosef, did he harbor any animosity towards his brothers or not? And if he did, why, if he did not, why did he give them a hard time at the beginning? And if he did, why does he say it was all because of God? But when we start now analyzing the difference and seeing the children of Leah represent teshuva, repentance, while the children of Joseph, I'm sorry, the children of Rachel represent spiritual ecstasy, a tzaddik, absolute righteousness, we can now see what happened. Why? What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to do, to feel bad that you did something wrong? That given the same circumstances, would you make the same choice? Then that's not teshuva. That's not repentance. Repentance means that if I were to give you the same circumstance again, what would you do? And let's see. 
text number 14, a quote from Maimonides. What does it mean to do Teshuvah? Page 120. What constitutes full Teshuvah repentance? When a person is presented with the same sin that they transgress and they have an opportunity again to transgress, yet refrains from doing so. For example, a person who's engaged in the forbidden relations with a woman and is subsequently alone with her and his love for her is just as strong and his physical prowess has not diminished and he is in the same surroundings as he was sin, yet he refrains from transgressing. This is a person who has done full teshuva. Let's take the story of what we spoke about. Let's take the story of what teshuva means. Teshuva means the same position, a new response. Yosef had overheard his brothers expressing remorse about what they have done to him. Yosef heard his brothers saying that they feel bad, that they sent their brother away. But how did Yosef know that they were truly upset, that they truly repented, that they truly did teshuva, that they are truly children of Leah who are people who master teshuva? was only when Yehuda was in the same position that he was 22 years ago and made a different choice. Take for a moment. What was the problem? What was the reason that we gave why the brothers felt that they have the right to kill Joseph? Because they felt this guy's coming along and stealing everything from them. They felt threatened about their future. Right now that Joseph was gone, if right now that Joseph was gone, Benjamin was taken by the viceroy of Egypt. They could have patted themselves on the shoulder, go back home to their father, say, Dad, sorry, there's nothing we can do. It's not, and not only that, they, and they would be, it wouldn't be their fault. They did nothing for it. It wouldn't even be their fault. And they could have walked away clean-handed, no problems. So what did they do? They didn't. They stepped up to the plate. And they said, we're not making this same mistake again. We are going to stand up and defend our brother at all costs. When Joseph saw that they were willing to defend their brother, that they were willing to stand up for Binyamin, that the brothers in this case in the past, when they were willing to sell Joseph because they were afraid. But now they defended Benjamin to the T that Yehuda said he was willing to give himself up. Then now Joseph said, okay, it's time to reunite. It's time to bring the children of Rachel, the Baal Teshuva. They mastered their repentance, excuse me, and they also to bring the children of Rachel together. This is the combination. The reconciliation finally takes shape. Children of Judah, children of Leah, children of, of Rachel become one. The Baal Teshuva and the tzaddik unite. However, yes. But that's not why they went to Egypt. They went because they were hungry. But it brought about a level of teshuva. Well, when you're hungry, it kind no. of humbles you. What does it have to do? Regardless of the reason, but it brought about a concept that right now they did teshuva. Let's take it a step further now. The bottom line is that let's summarize so far what we have. Yaakov marries Leah and Rachel which produces two factions. The two factions of the Jewish nation, the children of Rachel and the children of Leah. The children of Rachel are symbolic of the service of a tzaddik, while the children of Leah symbolize the service of a Baal Teshuvah, which is Teshuvah. 
But interestingly enough, throughout Jewish history, these two factions develop into parallels with each other. And in many different ways, as you can see it in figure 4.1, these two kingdoms, and we'll go through it soon, very as we go through the steps one by one, they are different in their primordial origin. They are different in their biblical personalities. They are different in their divine dwelling, in their appreciation of Judaism, in their activity, and in their objective. What does this mean? Let's take, for example, throughout Jewish history, there are two factions that develop parallel to one another. And at times they clashed, and at times they joined forces. But there was always a tension between the children of Rachel and the children of, of Leah. Who is that? The two kingdoms. The kingdom of Joseph and the kingdom of Judah. Oh, we'll get to it. Who is the kingdom of Joseph? Historically, the Jewish people were very reluctant to accept the kingdom of Joseph. The first one to be from the kingdom of Joseph was... Joseph himself being the viceroy of Egypt, claiming himself as a leader of the Jewish people. Did the other Jews accept it? Not so willingly until they had to come down to Egypt and they had to get some food. But eventually they accepted him. Then what happens next? After Moses is passing, who leads the Jewish people? Joshua. What tribe was Joshua from? Ephraim. Ephraim was the son of Joseph from the children of Rachel. Then we continue. Who is the first king ever to be on the Jewish people? Huh? But also the children of Rachel. Yes, but it's the kingdom of Joseph, but the children of Rachel. Who is the first king of the Jewish people? Was Saul. Saul the king. Saul the king was the first one to be the king over the Jewish people. He came from the children of Rachel. And then because Saul sins, the kingdom is then transferred to King David, who then becomes king. His son becomes the house of David becomes then king for eternity. Then we have Solomon as the king. But what happens after King Solomon? The kingdom splits. And who does it split to? Who is the other king of the tribe of the ten tribes? Is Yeruvim ben Evat? Yeruvim ben Evat is from which tribe? The tribe of Joseph. Where does even Yeruvim ben Evat set his kingdom? In the city of Shechem, which was the land that was given to Joseph. Now, what is he countering? The kingdom of Judea at the time. The two and a half tribes versus the ten tribes. Later on, Sancheref comes and exiles those ten tribes because of their idolatry and their profanity and so on. But the bottom line is the kingdom of Joseph and the kingdom of Judah keep on being counterbalanced. Even in the time of the coming of Mashiach, it says that first the world will be cleaned and taken first by Mashiach, a son of Joseph, and only afterwards will come a Mashiach from the son of Judea. So what we see from over here, number one, historically, in their primary biblical personalities, there has been the two kingdoms, the kingdom of Joseph, while the kingdom of Judea. Let's take this even a step further. We mentioned in step number two in figure 4.1 was the divine dwelling. The divine dwelling, we know that God chose to rest amongst the Jewish people. And therefore, throughout history, there were two ways how there was a divine presence of God amongst the Jewish people. One that represented the children of Rachel and one that represented the children of Leah. What was the first place that the Jewish people built in order to make a divine, a divine place for God? As we're soon going to read in the book of Exodus, was the tabernacle, the Mishkan. 
What was the next place that the Jewish people made? Was then the Holy Temple. What's the difference between the Mishkan versus the Tabernacle? One was besides that, but the Mishkan was made of organic materials. If you looked at the Mishkan, the way it was made, it started on the base with silver, then it went to wood, then it went to skins on top. Can you see the difference? Do you see the system of events? What is silver made out of? Inanimate objects. What is wood made of? Vegetation. What is animals and the levels of the stature of God's things that he created in the world? That means the tabernacle was an organic material. It was naturally holy. It naturally had a substance of a stature of combining, encompassing a spiritual structure. While the holy temple was made out of only enamored abjects, the lowest of all levels. While the Mishkan was in Shiloh, was in a place in the territory of the tribe of Joseph. The holy temple was in the territory in the tribe of Judah. Again, yes, but we're showing now the difference of the contrast of the kingdom. The Mishkan is organic materials, the Shiloh is Joseph. While this is the holy temple, again, you see the contrast of the two kingdoms. One representing the children of Rachel, which is absolute spirituality, the tabernacle. And the other one, the holy temple, which shows the penitent taking the inanimate object, which was in the land of Judah, the children of Leah. Let's take it even a step further. The Shalab points out that all of these above instances, what do we find? What do we see the difference between the two of them? Notice over here. In order to get to the Holy Temple, what do we need first? We needed first the Mishkan. We needed first the Tabernacle. In all of these instances, we have Joseph is the path, while Judah is the ultimate, is the goal. Take, for example, who was the first king? Saul made the way for the king of Judah, King David. He, well, he was the first one to be a king. The concept of kingdom never existed. The tabernacle was first as a temporary place, only to make place for the holy temple. In the time of the coming of Moshiach, Moshiach ben Joseph will be the one to pave the way, to wage the wars, and only to have later on the kingdom of David, Moshiach, be revealed. What we see very clearly in every single one of these ways, Joseph creates the path while while I'm sorry um, while Judah is the ultimate goal what we see from over here is also taking this a step further is look at where Rachel was buried and where Leah was buried where was Rachel buried on the the side of the road on the way she died on the road meaning on the side of the road on the journey to the holy land something that greatly pained her son Joseph who felt that she should have been in the cave of the patriarchs. So in text number 15, the, Shal- the Chedush Arim says as follows. Joseph is only a preface. Accordingly, the son of Joseph precedes Mashiach, the son of David, preparing the way for the son of David to become and the complete redemption. Joseph does not complete the redemption. Similarly, although Rachel is the primary element of Malchus, the divine attribute of kingdom, nevertheless, she was buried on the roadside as she does not complete the process. This is the deeper meaning of on the road. Rachel means that this is a process. Yes, she's the spiritual manifestation of absolute holiness, but that's only a process to changing the world 
while Leah was buried in the actual destination, the place of Hebron. So what we see from over here is the difference between the children of Leah and the children of Rachel. What Joseph was doing over here at the time of Egypt, he wasn't just making a 180. He wasn't schizophrenic. What he was bringing about was making them come together, reconciling these two kingdoms. But throughout history and throughout our life, we know that there exists these two factions, these two kingdoms. One is the path and one is the goal. The path is to have spiritual absolute, but the goal is to transform and to make a difference in the world. In our own lives, we also have a Yosef and Yulim. In our own lives and within ourselves, there also is this tension of the children of Rachel and the children of Leah. The Talmud says the debate as follows. Look in text number 16 on page 124. It was already the case that Rabbi Tarfan and the sages were assembled in the loft of Mitzah house of Lod. When the query came before them, which is greater, learning or action? Said Rabbi Tarfan, action is greater. Said Rabbi Akiva, learning is greater. Concluded all, learning is greater because learning brings to action. Here's a little um, tidbit. Rabbi Akiva, who was he? He was actually a reincarnation of Joseph. And because of that, what does he say? Learning is greater. Rabbi Akiva was a person who looked at absolute spirituality. He didn't want to look in the involvement and getting involved. But they used to say, what did the guy say? I have enough money to last me for the rest of my life. I'm telling you. <laughs> as long as I don't spend a dime. Okay. Sorry? I said I have enough money to last me for the rest of my life as long as I don't buy anything. It's Jackie Mason said that. But, but oh my right. God, Tony, so is please. that why? Is this that why was... Jacob picked uh, Leah to be buried God, by instead of correct? So what we see over here is the Talmud starts and says, "Which one's greater, learning or, or action?" And then the Talmud says, "Learning is greater." Then it says, "Action is greater." But learning is greater because it brings to action. What does that sound like? You know, the guy that came to the rabbi, and the, the two people come to the rabbi with an argument, and the one guy says. And the rabbi listens and says, you're right. And then the rabbi listens to the other guy and says, you're also right. And then the rabbi comes running and says, one second, they just said two opposite things. How can they both be right? And what does the rabbi say? You're also right. And that's what it sounds like up here. But what is it? But on the basic level, what we have over here is what the Talmud is saying is the ultimate goal is the goal is action. However, in order for you to get to your goal, you need the path. And the path is learning. Because the only way you can get to action is through learning. The same idea is also when we talk about the Yosef and Yehuda. Learning is Yosef. Yehuda is action. So when we ultimately, we were sent down into this world to engage with the world. God created a physical world and put us in physical bodies with the soul, but in purposes to engage into materialistic world and to transform it. The only way we can do it is that we need to have, number one, the Yosef to lead the way. But on the other hand, if we don't have the Yehuda, if we don't have the children of Leah engaging in the world, then we didn't do our mission. We didn't do our job. Correct. So therefore, yes, learning is important. But if you're missing the action part, 
then you're not going to be able to do it. But you can't do action if you don't learn. So you need the reconciliation of Yehuda and Yosef together in order to achieve your goal. Another way you can frame it is if I were to ask you, let's say I told you that you had to write a mission statement for what Judaism was all about in two sentences. What would you write? Prepare the world. Prepare the world. Anybody else? Oh, repair the world. Tikkun olam. Okay. What would you say? Anybody out there? If you had to write a mission statement for the world, for Judaism, what would it be? A lamp to the world. Okay. So Judaism embraces every every area of life. So obviously there are many different ways to express that objective. But if you would have to summarize it into two points, in general terms, we can divide it into two objectives, two groups. One groups would be spiritual and religious objectives, for example, which will include preparing, repairing the world, making, doing mitzvahs, weeding out the negativity, being more spiritual, being more selfless, just getting rid of laziness, selfishness, materialism, egotism, and all those type of stuff. And the other way would be improving of the world, like fighting poverty, illness, helping people that are sick, whatever maybe. may be, right? Tikkun olam. So one would be, so to speak, a spiritual motive, and one would be a physical motive. And we sometimes think that these two are sometimes maybe, you know, negate each other, are opposite from each other. And truth be told is on the contrary. They complement each other. And the story of Yosef teaches today what we learned about Yosef and his brothers is that we learned that Yosef is the path. And the only way to get to the path or what the ultimate goal of this other path is Judah is the goal. Our goal is the perfection of the physical world. The only way we can perfect the physical world is if we're armed with spirituality. If we study and we develop and cultivate a spiritual internal life, then we know we can engage the world and overcome it and take it and bring spirituality into the world. So we need the children of Rachel, the absolute spirituality. We need the children of Leah, which is engaging in the world. And the two of them together reconciling is what brings this world to perfection. Rabbi, Next week, you, uh, let me just, yes. Can you go back to um, two frames on the, one more, that's one, okay. Sorry. Thank you. Next week we continue. We go now to the book of Exodus. Let me just bring you to next week. Lesson four, Joseph and his brothers. Next week we can, where would we go? Next week we continue to tell us the next story is can it be a greater divine revelation then than what the Jewish people have experienced and what happens next? They sin with the golden calf. So we're going to talk about how is it possible that the Jewish people should sin with the golden calf right after having the revelation of the crossing of the sea and the broken tablets. Our exercise for this week is identify something you recently gained in a self-improvement sense, a new idea you learned, a new skill you acquired. Now think of at least one way you can direct this personal gain towards helping others and improving the world. Any questions? No questions? Only answers. Questions? Um, 
Joseph's hatred by his brothers was actually helped along by his father showed favoritism. That's why we mentioned. Father, right. If his father knew what was to come from his son, Rachel, why didn't he hide his preference? But after you learn today's class, you now understand that his preference for his son was because that was his ultimate desire. And then it would bring about the fusion of the two. I understand. Did he know that at the time? Didn't he see what was going on with his other sons? Did he that see? All, you know, like so, oh, so from a very, so the, as I said, we look at it from a simple teachings in the Torah. Right. And from that simple explanation, the Talmud says one should not show favoritism to his child. Right. But from a deeper meaning, when we understand the connection that, Joseph, that Jacob has with Rachel, that this is his first love and this is a spiritual connection, and Joseph is that connection, we can understand why that existed. Yes, but at the expense of hurting his own It wasn't, a, it's not necessarily hurting. But it was. It wasn't because if we look at it from a spiritual perspective, it wasn't hurting. They just have two modes. One works in one mode and one works in another mode. But the one was the didn't see that. At the time, but because they came to the realization, because they because the part of the process of the Baal Teshuvah is that at the moment we don't see it. When we engage in the world, our job is to cultivate it and to transform the world. So we look at the world as materialistic, the work of the world as it's fighting us. When we look at the world, we think that the world is against us, mm -hmm. but then we take a moment and we say, no, let's embrace it, let's engage it, let's uplift it. So if we're hurt and disappointed, we should just wait? Not wait. We have to look <laughs> and see how we can engage it and uplift it, which is a very important lesson. Great you mentioned that. So the next time we feel that it's dark and it's gloomy and there's evil, the question is, what do we do about it? And this is the teaching that we have to take from the children of Judah, that our job is to engage the world and bring a candle and light it, ignite it, cultivate it, and bring godliness to it. Okay. See you all next week, same time, same place. Don't forget Hanukkah celebration Thursday night, not this Thursday night, December 10th at the Brookhaven Town Hall. See you all. Take care. So long, Liz. Joseph is just a, he's way above his brothers. Hi, Patty. Hi. <laughs> Come next week. Good you show. never know. <laughs> Got to keep you guessing. <laughs> Soup is great. I'm sure it is. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Good night. Good night. Good night.